0: Thank you, Colleen. Hey, good morning, everyone. Good morning. Glad y'all are here this morning. Uh, for those of you that don't know me, uh, my name is Jaime, and I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, so glad that uh, you're you're joining us this morning. If you happen to be a guest, welcome. Uh, what I say uh, every week is that we're glad you're here, and uh, uh, I'd love to say hi to you, so at the end of the service, I'm going to be in the back. Come say hi, and make sure that you... Uh, get one of our welcome gifts. Um, uh, a few weeks ago, my mom was visiting us. And it was her first time here in the community, first time worshiping with us, and she got a welcome gift. And, and just this past week, she uh, was talking to me, she was like, what, what, "What coffee was that in the bag?" And I thought it was a local roaster. It, it, was, it was good. Now, you got to understand, my mom's been living in Puerto Rico for over 50 years, and in Puerto Rico, coffee is a big deal, and uh, she's grown accustomed to Puerto Rican coffee, so all throughout her stay here, one of her constant complaints is, yeah, the bed and breakfast I'm staying at is good, but their coffee is horrible. Can you give me some of your coffee? So for her to say that is just an affirmation of the quality uh, of stuff we produce here in Chatham County, so make sure you grab one of those welcome bags. It's great coffee and great honey as well, and uh, glad you're here joining us, most importantly for nearly 20 years there was one tech company that was the undisputed leader in its particular area of that market through three generations of technological advancements it kept being either the top seller or near the top and over the course of those 20 years it engendered significant brand loyalty like people identified with the brand they bought the brand they bought products associated with the brand everything was rolling for them They had a great strategy for engagement with their customers, and they had sort of mapped out a path for predictable success. And then suddenly, the strategy that they had didn't work. When Nintendo released the GameCube in 2001, it was expected to do well. All its previous consoles had done well. Now, over the previous year, Sony and Microsoft had gotten into the gaming business, and even though they were doing well and they were competing, there was no reason to think that the GameCube wouldn't do uh, similar sales or even better sales than the previous console, and yet, it only ended up selling two-thirds of what the previous console had. Nintendo had hit a wall. What do you do when the doors that had always been open to you suddenly close? What do you do when you expect a door to be open and suddenly you find it slammed in your face? Nintendo could have crumbled. Other video game companies in the past had. It also could have pushed blame outward or simply written it off and said, well, that was just a fluke. We know how to do this. We're just going to plow through and try to barrel through and the next time we'll get them. Instead, it did something different. It engaged in a process of reflection and innovation, and five years later, they released the Nintendo Wii. It was a console that made gamers out of people who had never conceived of the idea of playing a video game. People of all generations and ages gathered around this console to play. It also brought back the core fans that had grown a bit disenfranchised with the GameCube. It sold nearly five times as much as the GameCube had. Five times brought Nintendo back, and it changed how people thought of the industry. It changed how people thought of video gaming. It was a signature moment for Nintendo. Now, we all have moments in life when we are cruising along, where we're making progress, where we're firing on all cylinders. It feels like everything is going right. We know how to make life, or we know how to make a part of life work and work Consistently. And then, sometimes without warning, sometimes without explanation, what we knew how to do suddenly doesn't work anymore. And we find a door that we expected to be open closed. Our progress stalls. We hit a wall. What do we do? What we do in those moments when we stall out, when we hit a wall, when the door is closed can make all the difference. Unexpected setbacks closed doors, and momentum stoppers can actually lead to signature moments. These are the kinds of moments that can transform our lives and shape our legacies, and sometimes they are led to by unexpected setbacks, closed doors, and momentum stoppers. For right there, where you are, if you happen to find yourself in one of those moments, or maybe you've found yourself in one recently where everything that worked suddenly doesn't, and you're trying to figure out what to do next, and why did this happen? Perhaps you're on the cusp of a signature moment. Now, in those moments where we find the door closed, when we hit the wall, where our momentum stops, we may feel lots of things. We may feel discouragement. We may feel confusion. We may feel even indignation. We may feel disoriented. Now, we're not going to engage with that side of things, but I want to make two observations about that. One is that those are natural responses, And it's okay to feel those things. In fact, it is right to feel in that way. There's nothing wrong with that. The second thing I want to say, that that it can easily go from processing those feelings to dwelling in that state. And when we go to that, when we permanently sort of reside in that, when we adopt those as our ongoing posture, discouragement, disorientation, confusion, indignation, we may miss out on the invitation we may miss out on the opportunity to make the turn for that signature moment. Paul and his crew had been on a roll. Paul and his crew had been going along all over the region, place after place that they went to. They, they found that God was at work. The Spirit was on the move. Churches were growing. People were following Jesus. Stuff was rolling and rolling and rolling along, they are making their way throughout the region, and everywhere they set foot, things flourish. They're all throughout this area, right? And and uh, and then it says that the spirit keeps them from preaching in the province of Asia. They want to go, what would be in that map, northeast, and they get stopped. And this is not something we've seen happen to Paul before. Nowhere in the prior chapters does it ever say that the Spirit keeps them from going somewhere. So what do they do? Well, they keep going. They sort of alter their route, and they they, they take a different route, and then they try to enter another place. It says that they try to enter Bithynia. And once again, the Spirit does not allow them to go there. It doesn't allow them to preach there. So then they head down to Troas instead. And if you're looking for Troas on the map, it is uh, just under the E on the top of the screen, so maybe sort of in the middle. If you can't see the letters, that's okay. You don't even have to cover one eye to figure out if you can read it. It's right there. I'll help you out. Right there about the middle, uh, top middle, is where Troas is. So they head down there, and here's the thing. They've gotten a no two times. Two times they've gotten a no from the Spirit. This has not happened before. They've gotten two no's from God. The challenge is that there isn't a corresponding yes. They've gotten a no, and then a no again, and no corresponding yes. What do you do when you have God's no, but not the corresponding yes? What do you do when you realize that God has said no, but you don't know what he's saying yes to? Our lead pastor, Alex, often says that God's no is always in service of God's greater yes. But what that yet yes is isn't always obvious in the moment. Sometimes all we have is the no. And it can be especially frustrating when we feel like we were doing all the right things, that we were following God, that we were pursuing God's will, we were headed in a good direction with good plans, and that there's no reason that God wouldn't be behind those plans or bless them, and we have a no, and we don't have a yes. What do we do while well, we wait for the yes. What do you do while you wait for God's yes? In 2002, iRobot released the Roomba, and we entered the age of the robot vacuum cleaner. History will remember it for all time the age of the robot ra- vacuum cleaner. One of the things that makes the Roomba effective at what it does, besides its low profile, is how it deals with obstacles and barriers. When the Roomba hits a wall or hits a couch leg, It doesn't just try to keep pushing through to see if all of a sudden the couch leg becomes invisible or the wall disappears. It doesn't do that. Also, for the most part, it doesn't just stop and beep at you, though I know sometimes it does. It doesn't just shut down and wait for you to move it. That would be incredibly inefficient. We would all throw out our Roombas immediately. What it does is it changes direction and it keeps on vacuuming because that's what it was made to do. Now, at the start, the Roomba doesn't know what the best path to vacuum whatever area you're putting it in is. It doesn't know what the best path is, but what it does know is to keep vacuuming. What it does know is to keep vacuuming as it figures it out. In fact, I think newer versions actually have algorithms in place to to effectively map out the most efficient route, but it doesn't start that way. It has to figure it out. When Paulus and his companions get the know from God about preaching in Asia, they move on. They move on to the area near the border of Mysia, we were reading. When they get the know there about entering Bithynia, they move on and they go down to Troas. It's more than likely that these were multi-day journeys, and it's more than likely that along the way, wherever they were, they stopped and preached the gospel. It doesn't say that explicitly, But that is what Paul and his companions did everywhere they went. It's what consistently it says that they do. In fact, in in certain parts of Acts, when it's talking about Paul doing that, it says, as was his custom. Whenever Paul arrived in a place, Paul found the synagogue. And if he couldn't find a synagogue, he would find places where people were gathered, where he could have an opportunity to talk and hopefully turn the conversation to Jesus. He had a know from God. He didn't have a corresponding yes, but he had other yeses. He had other yeses from God. He had yeses connected to who he was, what his purpose was, what he was made to do. So what do you do when you have God's no, but you don't have the corresponding yes? One of the first things you can do is stay grounded in what you already know of God's purpose for you, what you already know God has made you for, what God has gifted you in. Now, there are other things. Loving God, loving our neighbors, connecting people to Jesus, serving others, bearing the fruit of the Spirit. Those yeses are yeses we all have. And they are timeless yeses. And they aren't situational yeses. They are yeses that we can do and are called to do when we have a no from God. They are yeses that we are called and can do when we have other yeses from God. They are the yeses for every day, in every season, at every moment, in every location. But there are also particular ways that God has wired us. He's wired you and me. He's gifted you and me. He's empowered you and me. He's called you and me. And if we know what those are, we can rely on those alongside the timeless ones to figure out what to do while we wait for the corresponding yes to the no we've already gotten. Because the next yes will come. It will come and we have something to do while we wait. We don't have to stand idly by. The yes comes for the folks in the passage. While they are in Troas, Paul has a vision. And after that vision, he gathers with his companions, with his crew, and they discern what that vision means and they decide that God is leading them to Macedonia. Macedonia is in an entirely different direction than where they were headed. It is further west than or further east than where they were. They were looking to go northwest. God calls them east. God calls them in an entirely different direction than where they were headed initially. And the reason Paul and his companions are able to recognize the vision, the reason they're able to discern the yes, the the reason they're able to figure out and then pursue that yes, is because Paul and his companions have cultivated habits of intimacy with God. They've cultivated expectancy in God to lead them. We see that all throughout Paul's story. We see that all throughout the book of Acts so far and in what's to come. Paul had habits of intimacy with God. He had habits of listening to God. He had habits of pursuing God, and it enables him to watch for and respond to the yes when it eventually comes. And that's the second thing we can do when we have a no from God without a corresponding yes. We can watch for and then respond to the yes when it comes. Now, there are a few things that are true, in our society, and they might be true for many of us, and they're going to make this one a little bit challenging. The first is that we live in a rapidly moving society. And in a rapidly moving society, we are unpracticed in patience. and We are unaccustomed to waiting. That makes it hard to attend to God's yes, to wait for God's yes. The second is that because there is a lack of engagement and training connected to how God communicates, what has been bred is both skepticism and a lack of expectancy at the idea that God still communicates. Many of us maybe hear things that say God does still communicate, God does still uh, say things to us, God does still reach us with messages in some way or shape or form, and we think that's sort of this abstract concept that doesn't apply. So we lack expectancy and we are left sort of wandering on our own. And the third one, which is connected to us, connected to that, is that we don't have the habit of making space to listen. Because we don't have training, because we don't have practice, because we don't have expectancy that God might still communicate or does still communicate, we don't make space to listen. And when we don't make space to listen the odds of us receiving or or perceiving God's yes decrease. But here's the thing. God does still communicate. God does still speak, and God wants us to hear the yes. Because God's no is in service of his greater yes, and God doesn't want to leave any of us wandering and wondering, what now? God wants us to know what comes next. Paul and his companions hear. God's yes. Not only do they hear God's yes, they respond to God's yes. And multiple signature moments happen because of it. We only read of a couple here. And one of the ones we read about is the beginning of what becomes the Christian community in Philippi. This is why we have the letter to the Philippians. This is why the church in Philippi is remembered throughout history. It's because Paul and his companions said yes and they had this signature moment, what signature moment might be waiting for you on the other side of watching for and responding to the yes that comes after the no, the path forward that gets opened when a door is closed? What might be there for us if we learn how to cultivate waiting, if we learn how to cultivate expectancy, if we make space to listen? What might be in store for you? Last year, I decided to try following a team in Spain's uh, professional football league, what we would call soccer. Uh, I don't know why I did that. I think I just decided, I'm going to give this a shot. This is a global sport. It's popular. Let me see if I can get behind this sport. So I picked a team. This is entirely true. I looked at the schedule for that day. I said, these two look like good teams. I'm going to watch this game, and I'm going to get behind one of these teams. And that's what I did. And that was a mistake, friends. I now understand why this sport is not only so popular, but I can't say anymore that I think the fans are loopy because I am now one of those people, uh, one of those people who wears a, a, a team jersey during games. I don't know. Because somehow I believe that's good for the team that's playing around the world. This is, If you're not a fan, part of me wants to say, And part of me won't say don't do it, but still, that's what's happened to me. But early on as I was following the sport and watching the games, I noticed how different the role of the coach or manager in that sport is to the way I see coaches or managers uh, interact in other sports. In fact, this is the manager of the team I follow. Uh, The halves in a soccer match are long, 45 minutes long at the professional level, and they can go by with little interruption. And the pitch, the field that they play in, is large. The stadiums are loud. What this means is that the coach can't constantly communicate to his players what he wants them to do. He doesn't have lots or she doesn't have lots of opportunities to engage with the players and tell them what to do. And there's no such thing as like timeouts or commercial breaks every little while to sort of gather the team and figure out what to do. The coach has to rely on the tactics they've designed and the strategy that they've communicated to the team and then trust that the players are going to use the skills that they have to not only execute that, but also to respond to the challenges that come in the moment as the other team implements their strategy and their tactics. Players can't freeze in the moment and go run to the coach or the manager and figure out, okay, what do I do now? Because if they do that, they're going to end up getting scored on constantly constantly. That type of dynamic requires both high trust and high ownership in order to perform well. In this short chapter, in just the few verses that we read, the Spirit has intervened three times to redirect Paul and his companions. After them going on sort of uh, sort of, I, don't, I don't want to say on autopilot, but, but just by doing what they thought was right over and over again, seemingly without intervention, three times the Spirit has intervened, either to say no or to say go here now. But once they get to Macedonia, there are seemingly no more instructions. They, they are brought there, and then they've got to figure out what to do, and Paul and his companions don't seem bothered by that. They go about know, doing what they know how to do. Once they get on the field, they know what to do. And there's a key here, not just to signature moments, but to life with God overall. And it's about the tension between control and agency. What they've done is they've yielded to the Spirit's will on their overall direction, but they've retained responsibility for doing their part, for doing what they know how to do for doing what they've been called to. And here's a timeless truth. We can yield control to God without abdicating agency. We can yield control of our lives to God without abdicating the agency of what we can and have been equipped to do. And this is a difficult tension to navigate because it's hard to resolve it. And so we end up having two extremes of people and lots of people in between at least For those who decide to follow Jesus. On the one end, you've got the folks who uh, invite God to bless their plans. That's how they operate with God. They've got plans, they've got direction, they've got things they do, and the way they involve God in that is they say, God, here's what I'm going to do, bless that. That's their whole approach to life. And then on the other end, right, and those people are high-control God is a rubber stamper. God is hopefully a facilitator and one who breaks down barriers and obstacles for them to get to do the things that they want to do. And then on this side, on the other end, you've got the people who think they need to check in with God for every single decision. Not just the big decisions, but even they check in with God to see if God has anything to say about what cereal they are going to eat or what words they're going to use in a particular sentence Or whether or not they are going uh, about wearing this outfit or the other one. It's a view of God that has God as a puppeteer and us as helpless puppets. And we can only do or act if God pulls us or shakes us or moves us or forces us. But there's a sweet spot. There's a sweet spot in between those two where we can acknowledge that Jesus is Lord over all and Lord over our lives. We yield the control that we have, but we retain the agency. We retain the the knowledge and the responsibility of what God has entrusted to us, the way he's invited us to steward our lives, to steward our time, to steward our resource, to steward our talents, to steward what we have. And this dynamic is not the dynamic of a rubber stamper, and it's not the dynamic of a puppeteer. It's a partnership. It's a partnership where we walk alongside God. And Paul and his crew get this. And because they get this, they have a signature moment, and they meet Lydia. And Lydia has a signature moment. Lydia, the the woman who deals in purple, has a signature moment. Now here's the thing, the fact that Lydia is named when so many other people in the book of Acts and in other parts of the Bible go unnamed indicates that she is well known enough among the churches that the people who would have received Acts, which is years after it's happened, would either have known her or known of her. She is well known enough that people still have memory of her or have heard of her. She is an important figure in the early church. She is a crucial part of the church in Philippi getting established. And meeting her was not part of Paul's original plan. It wasn't part of the original journey. It only happened because they knew how to respond when their momentum was halted, when they found the door closed, when they had the no without the corresponding yes. You never know whose signature moment you're going to be a part of When you step into partnership with God, you say yes to His way. Now, there are three things I want to highlight about Lydia's signature moment that will help us as we look for and prepare for ours. The first thing is that the passage tells us that Lydia is a worshiper of God. What this likely means is that even though she was not a Jew, she was following Jewish customs and she was pursuing uh, the God as the Jews understood it, the Israelite God. She followed the customs and practices of the Jewish community without necessarily joining it. She was hungry for God. She knew that there was something real and true about this God that the Israelites worshipped and followed, and so she did what she could figure out how to do to pursue that God and gather with his people as she could. She did what she knew to be faithful to that God, and that sets her up. It sets her up for her heart to be open. For her to be in the spot when Paul shows up and preaches the word, her heart is receptive because she has been faithful and is hungry for God. We prepare for signature moments through everyday faithfulness. Now God can and does get the attention of people who are far from him. He gets the attention of people who rebel against him. He gets the attention of people who have no concept of him. That being said, For those of us that do know him, for those of us that do follow follow him, for those of us that do call on him, everyday faithfulness encourages attentiveness and makes us more receptive to God's invitations when they come. What are the everyday faithfulness steps you can take that will set you up for your signature moment when it comes? This is sort of part of a a timeless spiritual principle that Jesus talks about. Whoever is faithful in the little is entrusted in the much, with the much. If we're faithful in the everyday, then we will be ready for those signature moments, those signature moments that transform us and shape our legacy when they come. Now, once Lydia decides to follow Jesus, her whole household also decides to follow Jesus. They're all baptized, and what she does is she makes her resources available, not just to Paul, but to the emerging Christian community in Philippi. She opens her doors to Paul and the emerging congregation and Paul's companions. Hers becomes the gathering space. She seems to have been a successful businesswoman, a successful merchant or part of an operation she is well-resourced and so she has resources available to provide for this community that at that point at its origins is meeting somewhere outdoors. She is a well-resourced person and she doesn't stop being that when she becomes a Christian. What she does is she figures out a way to connect that to her emerging faith. Connect who you are and what you have to what God is doing. Connect who you are and what you have to what God is doing. It's a way to prepare for signature moments. It's a way to set them up. There's a woman in our church who came to faith later in life, close to or after retirement age. And from the start of her faith journey, she had this sense that she could use her God-given talents and her God-given gifts to serve Him in the world. Not just around the world, but even in her local community. So here's who she was when she came to faith. She was a retired health professional. She knew how to help care for people. She knew how to organize people uh, for care. And she could cook the kind of food that makes you feel better. You know that kind of food. So for years now, she's been part of coordinating care for the folks of our community. She's driven people to appointments When they've needed help understanding what doctors have to say, she sits with them in those appointments and helps translate and ask questions of those health professionals. She's coordinated ongoing care and visitation for people, and she's prepared meal after meal. What she did when she came to faith is she brought who she was and what she had to offer to the table. And it's opened the door for signature moments. Countless people in our community have been blessed by that. And family of people in our community have told stories of the quality of care our community has given them because this woman brought who she was. She connected who she was, who she is, and what she has to what God is doing. We can all do that. We don't leave who we are at the door when we become followers of Jesus or we enter this community. We don't stuff all the things that we know how to do or that we're good at in a box when we enter into this community. We bring it with us. We figure out how to connect it to the work God is doing. God doesn't let it go to waste. God invites us to bring it to him. The last thing I want to highlight about Lydia might be subtle, but it's no less powerful. It tells us in the passage that she persuades Paul and his companions Come stay at her house. Now, she's a businesswoman, successful one. So maybe not surprising that she has some powers of persuasion. But she's also a woman in a patriarchal culture. And she's a new follower of Jesus. And they are experienced followers of Jesus, leaders. But if she gets them to come to stay, here's the opportunity. Not only does her place become a hub for the community when it needs it, but she gets to learn more from this crew for as long as they are in this region. So what does she do? She asks for what she wants and what she thinks she needs. Ask boldly for your signature moment. Ask for what you need. Ask for what you want. We believe in a good God a generous God, a God who delights in giving good gifts to His children, a God who wants us transformed, a God who wants us to leave a lasting legacy. So ask for what you need. Ask for what you want. Ask for your signature moment. The Scripture tells us to knock, to, to seek, to ask, because for those who knock, the door is open. Those who seek, fine. For those who ask, it is given. Trust that God is going to give the yes that He knows, you need. Ask boldly for your signature moment. In fact, that's how I want to close now. I want to create some space for prayer. And in that space for prayer, I want to give space for you to ask for a signature moment. You may know exactly what type of signature moment you need. You may not know. Ask the good God who loves you for an opportunity for a signature moment. God wants you transformed. God wants you to be part of living a legacy. God wants you to connect who you are and what you bring to the table to the work that he's doing. Ask for it. Ask for it now. I'm gonna, what I'm going to do is I'm going to just create some, I'm going to pray, I'm going to leave some moments of silence, and I'm going to let you in that time talk to God. Ask boldly for your signature moment. Here's what I want you to commit to, if you will. Once the, once the signature moment comes, two things. Say yes. Once the invitation comes, and then come tell us the story. We want to celebrate the work God is doing in our community. So let's pray. Holy Spirit, come. You who lead, you who guide, you who bless, you who have good gifts for your children, come and speak. Lord, come and listen to your children. Come and invite them to share a signature moment. Lord, we create space now to ask boldly for what we need. Lord, would you give us a sense that you are hearing and will provide?